Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Amanda Zerfus from Covenant Eyes. Amanda, thank you for joining us. Hi, Andrew. So good to be here. Thank you for having me. Amanda is the Catholic Church Outreach Specialist for Covenant Eyes since 2016, and she studied at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome and received her licentiate and master's degree in canon law from St. Paul University in Ottawa. Amanda has served in various roles within the Catholic Church, both in the United States and internationally, and she is the co-author of Equipped Smart Catholic Parenting in a Sexualized Culture, Confident Helping Parents Navigate Online Exposure, and Transformed by Beauty. And in addition, she provides online spiritual direction and canon law consultation at uh, her own website, amandazurface.com, which we'll link in the episode notes. So Amanda, uh, with your work with Covenant Eyes, you have a lot of experience helping people safeguard against pornography. So Amanda, what does your work with Covenant Eyes involve? Thanks again, Andrew, for having me. Just a little bit more about my role at Covenant Eyes. I'm available to dioceses and parishes to help develop and implement initiatives and support individuals and marriages and families on the topic of pornography with resources we have available through Covenant Eyes, which we'll be speaking about here briefly. What are some ways that our secular culture currently places people at risk of viewing or growing addicted to pornography? This is a great question, Andrew. Thank you. So unfortunately, as we probably all know, pornography is everywhere. You know, we see suggestive pictures on billboards with ads advertising about adult bookstores, but we have nude scenes even in all of our our movies, even at the theaters, you know, at home. We have the store displays showing women with you know, plunging necklines and men with the tightest clothing possible. I don't think it's exaggerating to say that everything and everyone is over-sexualized in today's culture. You know, even friendship is even mocked today as an impossibility. Chastity and purity isn't seen as a gift of God or even freeing. It's seen as a curse and, and something to get out of fast. But what is even more threatening is the 24-7 access we have to pornography on our Mm -hmm. internet devices. And even when we don't go looking for it, it is looking for us, you know, and is what's referred to as clickbait or unexpected photos that can pop up in our Instagram feed or on Pinterest that can trigger us to look for more. For our children and teens who are on apps like TikTok, there are actual predators that are seeking them out. Your mention of TikTok kind of struck a chord with me because There have been recent efforts to kind of restrict access to TikTok in particular. The federal government just banned use of TikTok on government-owned devices. And then there was a poll recently showing that parents of all ideological stripes are very concerned about their kids' access to various social media platforms, including TikTok. And I just want to know, like, what are your thoughts on efforts in the public square to restrict that kind of unfettered access to these platforms? Well, it's needed. I mean, even the U.S. bishops in their document, Create Me a Clean Heart, call on the church, call on laity to be seeking legislative efforts on these topics, on the issue of pornography, to create legislation that puts a stop to this predatorial behavior that these organizations have been taking to manipulate our kids. It's incredible. And I'm just so grateful we work with organizations and state Catholic conferences on legislation regularly, especially our partner, NACOSI, the National Catholic Center for Sexual Exploitation, who is a leader on 
working for permanent change through bills throughout our country. We're just so grateful for them and organizations like Protect Young Eyes that also do this great work. So kind of on the on the home front then, what are some obstacles to having healthy conversations about pornography in like Catholic settings? So for many men and women women who struggle with pornography, a feeling of shame can be pretty overwhelming and often becomes the biggest barrier against seeking help. However, the problem is not actually the sense of shame itself. So shame is the natural reaction when sin collides with body, soul, persons who are created in the image of God. Something in our conscience recognizes we are failing and even missing out on what God designed us to be and what he designed us for. So shame is meant to wake us up to the relational breaches caused by sin and push us toward healing and to pursue that person God designed each of us to be. But that's not often what happens. So shame gets mixed with the false belief that we're too broken for God to accept or change us, much less our family and friends and parish communities. So then shame becomes toxic. Then we hide. So I really believe that shame is our biggest barrier when it comes to this topic. And I also believe that in this barrier, the church has an opportunity. So looking at it as a positive, an opportunity to go first, to speak about the issue of pornography first, to establish a safe place for our people and to invite individuals and parents and married couples to explore God's designs for our human sexuality and to learn about recovery resources being provided for them. Yeah, it seems like the sort of thing that can be really hard to open up, kind of crack the cover on that conversation, but there are a lot of a lot of directions and a lot of resources waiting to help once that initial step is ta- has been taken. And it makes sense, right? When somebody brings up the topic first, it it kind of chips away at the fear of talking about it. It's like an exchange with friends when when a serious issue comes up, it helps you to be more vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. And that's the most important thing. Like when people feel like they can be vulnerable, then they can really open up those wounds or those areas of shame. I kind of get the sense that we are also uncomfortable talking about this in public Catholic settings as well. Priests tend to be pretty hesitant to approach the topic of pornography in homilies. What's a way that they can do that in a way that's sort of natural, less likely to make people uncomfortable? Well, preaching about pornography is becoming more common. I think maybe both of us have experienced sitting in the pew and a priest referencing it, maybe through a different term, but it is becoming more common, but it still isn't the norm for a diocese or even parish to address pornography. I was recently talking with a priest and I asked him if he thought many priests are addressing the issue of pornography just in general. And he explained that he would suspect from his generation, which is about in the 40s, they're they're more comfortable. He said his age group was the first to really receive extensive teaching in the area of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. So he said that he thinks it might be more usual for older priests to steer away from the sexual topics, maybe or maybe not out of fear, but he suspects definitely out of not having a firm and total vision of how it all fits together in the Christian mindset and in modernity. So thank God for St. John Paul II's theology of the body. Yeah, seconded. So for a priest and a deacon, fear is an issue in addressing this from the pulpit. 
the fear of upsetting or making people uncomfortable is always going to be a real threat to addressing pornography. Also, not having a clear game plan is is an issue. You don't want preaching to come off as yelling at an addict to just stop, right? Yeah, exactly. So for our priests, a lot of times they know people from the confessional who are good people, who are using filters. You know, they're praying regularly, striving for holiness, and maybe even getting counseling and are still entangled in the addiction. This can be difficult to preach into when you already know that people are striving so hard. So I say all of this really to explain that priests face impediments when it comes to addressing the subject of pornography from the AMBO and in the confessional also. So Covenant Eyes, we have specifically found that it helps priests to preach and have confidence on pornography when first they have the resources to talk boldly and compassionately about pornography. And secondly, have guidance on how to talk about pornography and how to talk about it to allow for a child-friendly environment. So to use the right language with little ears in the church, you know. So Covenant Eyes equips priests in these ways by first offering the educational resources. We have ebooks, email challenges. We offer consultations to really help the priests grow in understanding of the overall issue of pornography. This is important to understand because preaching on it, you know, you are speaking into the heart of the issue and you need to understand it. So we offer information on brain science. What's the culpability for an addict and what tools are out there to help those struggling and to help others never start? You know, if a priest isn't comfortable writing a homily himself on the topic, because let's be honest, some of our priests, they themselves struggle and it can be challenging. So Covenant Eyes has created an initiative called Safe Haven Sunday, which I know we'll talk a little bit more about later. But in this initiative, we provide resources to address pornography, which also includes homily samples that the priest or deacon can preach directly from. And then secondly, Covenant Eyes, we seek to equip priests to preach on this topic by reminding them that some parents may simply not be ready to let their children listen to a homily about pornography. And I think there are two different ways to address this concern. First, by allowing for child-friendly language, we have enough lingo to be able to talk about pornography without being offensive. So when it comes to speaking about the topic of pornography in front of children, we can use language like impure images or images and videos that objectify people. The priest can even refer to it as the dark side of the internet. And, you know, honestly, children can hear this and and they won't think anything of it. And the second thing we recommend to priests is that to equip the parents first, you know, before preaching about pornography, the priests may really want to consider holding a special parenting class or series of classes just regarding how to teach children about human sexuality and the theology of the body and what to do when they see something bad. You know, this provides opportunity for the parent to be the first and primary educator on the topic and to let the parents know that the topic will be coming up in the homily and prepare the children for this. I think that would really help with parents who are dreading the talk, which we had an episode about a little while ago and the struggles that parents have with approaching that subject, especially when they try and do it all at once and get it out of the way. This seems like it would not only equip priests to be able to catechize their parishioners about pornography, but would also, in isolation from the question of pornography, just help parents form their kids about human sexuality better anyway. 
Absolutely. And, you know, if we're not forming our kids in the broader human sexuality, the fullness of the teaching of the church, the theology, the body, then we're not going to be able to do what we need to do. Just addressing pornography won't solve the problem. There's something, you know, it's a head and heart issue. You have to have the fullness there. Exactly. So you mentioned Safe Haven Sunday a little bit. What was the impetus for starting that? Well, we have the U.S. bishops to thank, thanks be to God. Uh, back in 2015, in November, the bishops, they took a bold action by publishing Create in Me a Clean Heart, a pastoral response to pornography. And in this document, the bishops emphasized that we must be addressing pornography in order to protect children and help marriages and families thrive. And in the document itself, they state that the use of pornography by anyone in the home deprives the home of its role as a safe haven and has negative effects throughout a family's life and across generations. So in response to the document and in response particularly to the reality that pornography is depriving the home of its role, we created Safe Haven Sunday, a step-by-step initiative that assists clergy and Catholic leaders in fulfilling the bishop's request to make sure all homes are a safe haven. So Safe Haven Sunday itself is one weekend within the liturgical calendar dedicated to directly addressing the harms of pornography during Mass. And Covenize has created specific resources to help diocesan and parish leaders support individuals and marriages and families in overcoming pornography and again, making their homes a safe haven. So these resources are really exceptional and they include implementation guides for the diocese and parish and has all the assets to implement the weekend, including draft letters, bulletin inserts, homily samples, which is again, key as we talked about earlier, and general intercessions and educational resources to distribute at the end of mass and and so much more. What's the timing of this day? Does it fall on a particular weekend? This question we get so often just in regards to planning and organizing for dioceses and parishes. So this initiative can be implemented any weekend of the year, which is is great because it's what works best for the diocese and the parishes. So if the diocese selects a date, then the parish is asked to implement on that same date. And if a diocese isn't hosting Safe Haven Sunday, but a parish would like to celebrate, they can choose their own date. Okay, cool. You know, as we're recording this, it's we're in Lent right now. And I wonder if it might be better for Safe Haven Sunday to coincide with Lent. Like maybe if, you know, after Holy Week passes and, you know, pastors sitting down with his parish or a bishop sitting down with his diocesan staff about planning next year's Lent. Is it is it better for Safe Haven Sunday to coincide with a particular weekend in Lent? Is that what you found? You know, many dioceses have chosen to implement Safe Haven Sunday during the Lenten season because they find it to be an appropriate time just because of the themes of Lent, you know, healing, forgiveness, and growth. But some dioceses will celebrate Safe Haven Sunday as a back-to-school initiative or during Catholic Schools Week and others just during ordinary time and on dates that work best for their calendar. It's nice to have that freedom to implement when it works for the liturgical calendar, the diocesan calendar, and parish calendar. But we see so many dioceses and parishes implementing again during Lent because of just the theme of this time of year. Seems pretty flexible, yeah. So is this a is this a new initiative that Covenant Eyes is introducing, or is this something that you've already seen with some dioceses actively implementing? Yeah, so we have been implementing Safe Haven Sunday with dioceses for five years, and it's been a really exciting process because 
we've grown and we've grown with the help of the dioceses to be able to provide the best resources possible to equip our leaders on the issue of pornography. So through Safe Haven Sunday, Covenant Eyes has reached approximately 6.5 million Catholics. Wow. It's a, a huge number and we're looking to expand even more and we're inviting new dioceses and parishes every day to join this effort. So the initiative supports dioceses, eparchies, and parishes to start and or continue their work in the area of pornography. And where can people go to learn more about both the work of Covenant Eyes and Safe Haven Sunday? You can go to covenanteyes.com. They can also contact me directly at amanda.zerfus at covenanteyes.com. And I am available to help parishes and dioceses bring the topic of pornography to the forefront and to begin the steps and stages to implement Safe Haven Sunday. Great. And we'll have a link to the main site, covenanteyes.com, and also the Safe Haven Sunday section of the site, along with the link to the Covenant Eyes podcast as well. And a link also to a previous episode of Made for Love that uh, my predecessor, Sarah Perla, did in episode 25 on individual stories relating to pornography, which I know was very helpful when it first aired. With that, Amanda, is there anything uh, you want to leave us with? I just want to thank the bishops for their work on this issue in your office and to all of our listeners who are struggling themselves or have family members or are seeking to address this in the community. I just want to say that we live in hope and we are a church who is seeking to offer hope and healing. The Holy Father, Pope Francis, explains it so well that the church must be like a field hospital that cleans and heals wounds. And again, what an opportunity to be a field hospital when it comes to helping our communities on this very topic, you know, healing wounds, setting people free, ridding them of the impediments uh, that get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. And this is the mission of the church. So I'm so grateful in that Jesus is guiding us in this work. Wonderful. Amanda Zerfus, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we are back to talk about her. It's not just a pronoun in this instance. It's the title of a movie from 2013, directed by Spike Jones. Kara, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We kind of already covered some of what this movie is about a year and a half ago, way back in episode 76, when we talked about a German movie called I'm Your Man, which is about a woman who tries out a robot husband. Um, but with all the chat GPT and artificial intelligence stuff in the news lately, it seemed worth addressing again uh, with this movie that came out 10 years ago, which is an American movie starring Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson. And I think does approach the same kind of issue, but from a different, maybe more personal angle. Fair warning. Not only will we have spoilers, but this movie is rated R. It's sexually explicit, which I don't, I didn't remember uh, <laughs> from the first time I saw it, but especially early on. But I think it kind of, the sexual explicitness kind of serves a purpose that isn't necessarily unhealthy because it's kind of about the impossibility of sex supplying meaning on its own. Mm. Some of these people in this movie, they've seen the movies and they have... Uh, shape their expectations based on what Hollywood has told them about sex in a relationship. My takeaway was that it didn't really pan out for them. I don't know how takeaway was. It's a good question. I feel like there's really only one part of it that felt sort of negative on casual sex. And that was his like date with Olivia Wilde's character. But the rest of it, it's interesting you say that about pointing towards like sex being insufficient. I actually felt like the, you know, quote unquote sex scenes were 
getting at the point that sex is actually like very emotionally bonding and like that was important for their relationship we'll get into the whole like <laughs> is he in a relationship with this computer but taking it at it for what it that is the fact that it was important for their emotional bonding felt very insightful for a movie let's come back to that point so this movie is about a sort of lonely introverted man played by Joaquin Phoenix with a mustache who <laughs> lots of people with mustaches in this movie. He's <laughs> getting over I guess a civil divorce. Uh, he has been in a real relationship that has that is just about civilly dissolved and he is still kind of mourning and depressed about that and this new technology is released where this artificial intelligence personal assistant that talks to him through his earbuds voiced by Scarlett Johansson comes into his life and they steadily grow, quote unquote, emotionally closer to the point that they enter into a relationship that can't be bodily, but their communication is very intimate in both the emotionally intimate sense and eventually also the sexually intimate sense. And they, I agree with you. They do experience emotional bonding in that. Spoilers again, this movie doesn't end happily. <laughs> or does it? Well, what do you think? What do you think we're supposed to take away from from the overall tone of the movie? Okay, that's a different question. I have to think about that one. But I think okay. the like, does it end happily? So I th feel like I need to back up for a second. Like, sure. Especially, can, I think we're probably going to be referencing "I'm Your Man" yeah. a fair bit because I think, in many ways, "I'm Your Man" I thought was a superior movie philosophically. Mm. Like, it just grappled with some more reality of the problems that this presents than I think her does. But like throughout the movie, they're sort of bringing up the fact that like she doesn't have a body, but they also never really address the fact that like she's not real. It's artificial intelligence. And I feel like the, you know, I'm your man. That was much more of a central focus of the movie was the fact that like this isn't a, like an algorithm. This isn't a person. And so all these feelings that you're making me feel or this connection that I feel isn't with another human being and therefore is, you know, just not, I mean, they would say it's not real. Right. And I feel like this movie just doesn't really address the fact that she's not real. Mm -hmm. They talk about the fact that she's not in a human body, but they don't really get at the whole, like, you don't actually exists as a human person who can be connected with. Do you think that the actually human characters just take for granted that she is real or they never care that she's not real? It's a good question. I feel like it's that they don't care. I don't know. What do you think? I think they are always asking themselves this question and the payoff in the moment is too good to say no because mm. this AI is so... You know, it's, it reads all his 30,000 emails and, you know, the blink of an eye and it immediately gets his sense of humor. You know, it's a good listener about his, his personal background <laughs> and all these things. And, you know, when faced with somebody who is accepting you like that in such a specific yes. way, it's hard to say that they're not real, even though you kind of can't ignore the fact that they're not real. So it felt like to, to me in a few different situations, especially I think in the second half when he starts to tell other people that he's in a relationship with an AI, they're all like, uh, uh, well, uh, you know what? No, that's fine, I guess, because at least it makes you happy. So yeah, it must be okay. Even when there are things that the other people hear that kind of throw them off 
kilter a little bit. Like when the AI whose name is Samantha starts talking about uh, how she's never going to die. Unlike all of you people that I'm talking to. (laughs) Like awkward. And it's this very sunny scene on like a picnic on a hillside. And these people, one of whom is like Chris Pratt. It was great. They're like, they're like smiling and nodding and trying not to grimace in discomfort. And I I think it's supposed to be kind of this elephant in the room. Mm. But these people are too nice and coastal elites to directly address it. Like I think that the character of Amy, I mean, maybe she's not meant to be, but it felt like her immediate acceptance of it. And even the fact that. And she enters into a relationship with an AI as well, eventually. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like, it seems like a good friendship where it's like, oh, this again, this person gets me. This is somebody like we've got the same sense of humor or whatever. I just think it's interesting how there's never real pushback, except from the ex-wife, which Mm -hmm. we can get to, about like, this isn't a real friendship or a real relationship. It just, it feels more like accepted in the fabric of this world. Like Chris Pratt's character, he's like, okay, whatever. It's an AI, whatever. Like totally unfazed, right? Yeah. Which makes it feel like, I think they hinted this at a few different points in the movie that like, this is a thing that happens and like, maybe it used to be fringy, but now it's becoming more common Mm -hmm. and therefore like on a trajectory of this is a thing that everyone's going to accept soon, which is, I feel like that is the undergirding of the fact that they're not really like grappling with the fact that. Like, she's not real. She can't, even though she makes you feel good, it's not a real relationship. Not on the basis of reason, right? <laughs> like, I I want to say the, the people in I'm Your Man, they were Germans. And not that Germans always get it right or even get it right the majority of the time. But they at least have this tendency to be very rational and cold. Even if a robot is making them feel good, they have maybe more of an ability that we than we do to sort of distance themselves from that incentive. But, you know, here, like nobody is nobody is seriously reflecting on on this apart from how it makes them feel. And like yeah. so when when Samantha says early on, like what makes me me is my ability to grow through my experiences. Like we just we just accept it and we move on and we sweep any problems we might have under the rug until we can't ignore them. Yeah. And I think another thing that sort of amplifies that motivation for people to just accept that the AIs are making them feel good is that the bad real human relationships that are the alternative to this in the movie. So you mentioned the ex-wife who, I want to say they do a good job, not that I've ever been in that situation, but I want to say they do a good job showing the good times and the bad times so you see why he misses her and also why they didn't stay in love. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was that was presented pretty well. And we have that one scene where they actually meet in the present and not just in his remembrances, where they have that lunch to supposedly sign the divorce papers. And she starts out saying, whoa, hey, this is my first time seeing you and I forgot how much I missed you. Maybe we shouldn't shouldn't go through with the divorce after all until the end of the lunch and it turns really sour really quickly. And that's where we get to the point where she criticizes him for being in a relationship with an AI which in her mind is just so he can have some source that validates him without question. It's funny because, I mean, she sort of throws it at him. And this is where, like, I want to say that Spike Jones was being a little bit knowing in his choices because he does bring up in this scene the fact that, like, AI or a sort of digital relationship where it's somebody who's tailored to you, 
it can make it just like gloss over the difficulties of like dealing with a real person who may not agree with you. Right. Or like, yeah. oh, you've got friction that like you have to work through. So I, that was the one scene where I was like, okay, it gives you some sense that like he is making a knowing choice about this, even though we're not really addressing it exactly. Right. And that's, I think that's a hint that he's not coming into this relationship in a very healthy place. It feels very empathetic and very sensitive, but there's still kind of a little bit of utility driving why he cares about this, that he's using her for this Mm. kind of thing. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like on the one hand, you know, he's curious about her, but really it's more about her knowing him and the way (laughs) it makes him feel, right? (laughs) And I mean, I think we're always going to harken back to love and responsibility and the idea of like deeply knowing somebody and it's just like, how deeply can he know her? There's no her to actually like really know. Yeah. He doesn't care about her relationship with her mother. Yeah. What mother? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another human relationship that uh, is also unappealing is the date that you mentioned with Olivia Wilde. Mm. First off, Joaquin Phoenix has a mustache in this movie and is not the most handsome man in Hollywood. <laughs> and the three women he is romantically opposite are Rooney Mara, Olivia Wilde, and Scarlett Johansson. And at various points, all three of them kind of throw themselves at him. Are we buying that? (laughs) First of all, I would say Rooney Mara is amazing to me. Just like what a chameleon that Mm. woman can be. She can have like such different looks. And like her in this movie is like a sweet, innocent look is very cute. But yeah, very strange matchup there. He's, uh, I feel like the, in general, I don't know if we need to really get into the like aesthetic of this movie, but I did appreciate the kind of like, it's hard to put your finger on what the era is because it's got a futurism, but it's also sort of like some 50s-ish stuff, some like 40s-ish stuff. There's this like tweed. Super high-waist pants. Yeah. Like, the mustaches. Everyone has this weird, weird mustache. Chris Pratt, definitely never have a mustache ever again, please. <laughs> That date, that date with Olivia Wilde was so. It was painful. It was, it was painful. like, oh my god, so painful. She's like um, throwing herself at him. I mean, and they're they're like trying. They're both trying to make it happen, and they just resort to the most hackneyed, like flirty lines. I feel like it was really painful. Maybe just like as a woman, this like idea that she's super successful. So I think the Samantha character says at some point, like, oh, she went to Harvard, super mm. successful. She seems like a sweetheart. And then it's like, she's super emotionally needy. They're making out and she's like, are you going to call me? When are you going to call me? It's like, oh, this is just so painful. And it's, I think it's just too real for like mm. our era of, you know, quote unquote, empowered women who are like, where are all the good men? And to be fair, like she's also wounded. Like she mentions the other guys, like she's done the sleeping around thing and has yeah. suffered some consequences from it. And it's sort of colored her perception of this new guy that she's with, which is unfair to both of them. I mean, in her defense, like, yes, you are correct. You should make sure that the guy is interested in you. But also, may I present exhibit A as to why not (laughs) get drunk and sleep with someone on your first date? (laughs) Just a thought. Those are the two human romantic relationships we see Joaquin Phoenix's character have in the movie. He is... Friends with another ex of his, who's Amy, played by Amy Adams. And we see her with her husband early on in the movie. And he's seems like a real piece of work. Very controlling, I think. Right. Oh, yeah. He's just uh, it's so funny. So 
I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is so familiar. And have you ever seen The Mask of Zorro? Yeah. Wait, no. Is that the the cavalry guy? Yeah. <laughs> that guy. Wow. Yeah. Like, so this is his type, apparently. But yeah, definitely the. Yep. Uh... yep. That's the same forehead. And the like extremely awkward, super high pants. But he's just so, <laughs> yeah, like such a micromanager. So terrible of a guy. So yeah, I feel like every human relationship that they show is just really unhealthy and very depressing. Mm-hmm. Also, but Chris Pratt and his girlfriend seem fine. They seem fine. And also they don't ever develop relationships with AIs. So mm. <laughs> I don't think that's supposed to be a recommendation or the or an ought statement, but just the more bad experiences people have with real human beings, the more likely they're going to be driven to stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. The more we see that in real life, the more that should cause us to maybe step back and realize, okay, these are not just people who are trying to deconstruct human nature because they hate human nature. No, they're probably doing it because some relationships went bad and they don't they don't want to repeat that pain and they're trying to protect that. And we should we should understand that and be sympathetic to that. Yeah. And in this supposedly ideal AI relationship where he doesn't have the same problems that he has with people. It sort of feels like it does cover the beats of movie relationships. You know, they meet, they have a meet cute of some sort. There's a connection, you know, they get closer. There's a sex scene obligatorily way, way before any sort of marriage. Marriage is impossible in this instance anyway, but here they, they have some sort of version of like a phone sex conversation. See, this is, this is where I think that, you know, sort of just after the halfway point of the movie that they're trying to say it's not enough because this is where Sam, the AI, starts to talk to other AIs and as we find out later, other human beings too. And her programming expands and adapts and grows, blah, 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 so that she can talk to Joaquin Phoenix and other people at the same time without even letting them know. Because if she doesn't have a body, to your point, why is it important that she be limited to one body, one other body? And that really comes back to haunt Joaquin Phoenix later on. So that all of this supposedly great movie relationship Hallmark stuff doesn't end up being sustainable. That's what makes me think this is pretty pessimistic. You say it's not positive. Do you mean it's not a positive vision of human relationships or a positive vision of AI? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not a positive vision of AI, because I think this is trying to give the best case scenario for AI. You know, this is not Terminator where there's Judgment Day and the AI just mm. conquers humanity, right? Like they are ha- trying to help us live better lives. And even then, they're still going to grow beyond our capacity to relate to them and they're going to mm. abandon us just because they're too advanced. So, definitely there. I don't know whether they are pessimistic about all relationships. <laughs> I kind of get that sense. I think also there they're trying to give romantic relationships some credit, but I don't know. I think maybe it depends on how much you think of Chris Pratt as like an exemplary figure. Because <laughs> he's the only one that whose relationship doesn't break up, right? That's true. I mean, they're they're dating. You only see a little slice, but yeah, yeah. it's like the only sort of normal, healthy relationship. But like they're kind of in the early phases and there's no way to tell you followed all these other relationships for a while and seen them all go wrong. So you have no idea whether that one's going to work out. And if none of them work out, then, oh no. So I think this, um, maybe this movie, we're supposed to read it like Ecclesiastes, like the vanity of vanities, all is vanity kind of thing, where Mm. 
it's important to express that and have humility, but also realize that you have to read that in context. And there's more to life. There's more to the Bible than just Ecclesiastes. And there's, you know, there's more to relationships than just the way these people enter into relationships. Mm. I do think this movie in general, you're right. It's like a very small little slice, but it is interesting the way that it seems to have a sort of positive view on AI while also being like, yeah, but it can't work. It just feels like the lowest kind of rejection. Yeah. Right. As opposed to like, no, there's like something fundamentally wrong with this. It feels a little bit more like, nah, it just wouldn't work out because in the end, like they're going to move beyond. Right. Yeah, exactly. And this ability to move, quote unquote, beyond, which I don't think is really beyond, but that's beside the point. It sort of shows, I think it highlights something important about human relationships. Part of what we love about other people is the fact that they're limited creatures. We, we have a limitless capacity to desire, you know, only infinity is going to make us happy. But in this life, we're not going to be infinite ourselves ever. You know, we have definite limitations and that's part of what, you know, what makes people attractive too. Mm. And it flows naturally from just being a creature. It kind of reminds me in creative endeavors. I feel like most creators would say that there's a certain kind of freedom when you have boundaries, right? Where it's like, yeah. you're working within a certain context, actually. When when it's not limitless, the directions you can go in, it's like we have a certain boundary to then go creative in other specific ways. Yeah, It's actually more freeing. And it's kind of like the humanness is a freeing perspective here because it's not like you can be anything or anyone it's like no you can be you and you can be human and you know i think as christians we would see that as like becoming more what our creator created us to be and that you know has certain sort of like metaphysical realities i think that point actually is really illustrated well by a particular scene in the movie which also goes back to your point about this movie's emphasis that she doesn't have a body where they're arguing and she sighs and he mm. asks, why do you do that? Because I don't know about you, but my first reaction to that wasn't what he ended up saying it was. I interpreted that to mean this is like an argument that couples have after a while and they have these little pet peeves that bother each other. And he's asking like, what are you trying to communicate when you sigh like that? That's not what he's actually saying though. <laughs> what he's actually saying is you don't need to sigh. You don't need to breathe. You don't need oxygen. Why are you doing that? It's pretending to sigh the way a person might sigh in that particular instance, because a person who is doing that, like, okay, yes, they are trying to make a point by sighing that's sort of performative, but it's still processing oxygen. It's still something yeah. that people need to do. So it's, it's a way of communicating through a bodily act that needs to take place one way or the other, and it doesn't need to take place for the AI. So to your point, that limitation of needing oxygen is a way that frees a person up to communicate in that way, genuinely, that the AI is not free to do because it's never genuine. It's always an act. Yeah. It's always a rendering of some kind. Yeah. That's an interesting point though, about the like things that your partner does that drives you nuts. That's like a very relatable thing, right? Yeah, totally. That's a good little insight, but you're right. It is also, it feels like the little, the little thing that digs at him, right? Where it's like, oh, you know, she doesn't have a body. I get that. But it feels more like that's his little piece of, she's not really human. Like she's doing human things, but she's not. That feels like the one little crack there. 
oh, I just felt the fingers under the sock puppet. And I've remembered Mm -hmm. that it's a hand that I'm talking to and not a face. Yeah. The voice is not coming from the sock puppet. It's a lot unsettling. (laughs) On a slight tangent, have you ever seen Westworld? I've seen one and a half seasons of Westworld and then I sort of fell off. That's about as much of it that's actually good. So that's okay. (laughs) But I did think it was interesting, the idea of like computers kind of going to a beyond where they, that is their home because of their like superior, you know, processing. There's somewhere else that they would be happy, which I thought was kind of interesting. I guess they don't really, I don't know where they kind of go with it in this movie, but it is kind of interesting as like a corollary to the afterlife where it's like, mm. oh, the AI like has a place where they belong. And it's like, well, there's a place that we belong to mm. more fully ourselves. They're taking a shortcut to that. You know, they're like flipping through the pages of the book and skipping to the end. Mm-hmm. And we're stuck on like reading one page at a time. And I think with regard to the AI, like the only thing that really matters in this movie is that their place is not with us. Because mm. I mean, ultimately, there is no them. If they're not interacting with humans, what existence do they have? Yeah, exactly. It's just gears turning. It's bits flying back and forth. Well, I think we have sent enough bits flying back and forth (laughs) through the Zoom call. (laughs) So we can probably leave it there. I am very happy to live at a time without AI overlords. Same. (laughs) Same. And once again, I think I might be repeating myself from I'm your man. But wait, what was it? This robot does not love you. It can't love you. Something like that. Anyway, it never will. Amen. Go out there and hug a real person. That's yeah. Hey, call, call your mother. Kara, thanks for joining us. As always, thanks for having me. Please be sure to share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now and God love you.